The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 246 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Beth O'Hara, functional naturopath specializing in complex chronic conditions related to mast cell activation syndrome and histamine intolerance. In today's episode, we uncover this syndrome and the multifactorial nature of this relatively unknown condition. We discuss histamine, methylation, food sensitivities, elimination diets, and so much more. This is a complex topic that we hope may help you or your loved ones solve their health puzzle once and for all. Hi, Beth, and welcome to the show. Hi, Steph. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Yeah, it's such a fascinating topic. But before we dive in, I'd love to set the scene with an introduction from yourself about certainly your background and what you do these days. Sure. I, you know, I have a little bit of a, a, a different kind of background um, than most healthcare practitioners. So I started out was from the age six, I was going to go to medical school and I was very driven about that. And when I was in um, college, I got really, really sick. And so sick that I had a full scholarship to medical school. I had to turn it down, which was really devastating for me. Had no idea what I was going to do. And I took this winding road. So I became a yoga therapist. I studied meditation and spirituality in depth. Then I became a health coach and, um, and then became a naturopath. And, and the reason I circled back around to healthcare was because I had such bizarre health issues, or at least they were thought bizarre at the time. Nobody could figure me out. I saw over 50 healthcare practitioners, spent well over 150000 US dollars, and didn't have any answers. And I finally realized I was going to have to figure it out myself. And so I became a health coach and then became a naturopath and, and a functional naturopath. So that was really the key, was looking at the functional part, looking at root causes. And I got my health back and it was such a dramatic change. People started asking me, wow, what happened? And that's, that's kind of how I got started in all of this. Awesome. I mean, not that you were so unwell, but great that you obviously found a way to health and now have the amazing knowledge as well as firsthand experience to help others. So where are you based these days? Well, I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, but I, more than half of my clients are remote. So I work with people around the world. I have clients in Australia, which I know is where you're based, and um, across Europe and Canada, Mexico, partly because um, there's not a lot of people taking a functional approach to mass cell activation syndrome. So it's hard to find practitioners. Yeah. So we work video conferencing. 
Yeah, great. It's it's so great that you're not limited by location, especially because you do specialize in these more complex chronic chronic health conditions. And it's not something I specialize in at all when when it comes to mast cell activation syndrome. So I'm really excited to learn more from you today as well. Before we take um, any further steps forward, I just wanted to start with some definitions for my benefit and for the benefit of everyone listening. What are mast cells? Sure. So mast cells, and this is really important to everyone listening because we all have mast cells and they are extremely important immune cells in the body. So they're the first line defenders if there's any kind of infection or an allergen. So the mast cells help protect us from viruses and bacteria and parasites and fungal infections. And their job is to surround and isolate the invader. And the way they do that is by creating inflammation. So if you know how if you cut your finger and it gets kind of red and swollen, um, if you know you hadn't cleaned it well or something like that, that's a mast cell response, that inflammation. And so that's really important. We want those mast cells to do their jobs like that. And then they're also incredible signalers. So these mast cells have over 200 different kinds of chemicals in them. So the one that people know the best is histamine. So if you're getting scratchy eyes, watery eyes, sneezing, rashes, those kinds of histamine responses, even acid reflux, things that people have taken antihistamine for, um, that's a mast cell response typically. But they can release these 200 different kinds of mediators also and they can release them selectively so they're really intelligent and they signal to other immune cells to come and get involved in the immune process so they're like if we think of the immune system like an orchestra the mast cells are like the conductor and they're really central to what's going on in the body so i think of them also i like the metaphor of if our body is like a castle the mast cells are the frontline guards and the mast cells are there to make sure nothing gets into the castle that shouldn't be there. And when they're working properly, they allow things into the body that should be allowed in. And when the mast cells are working properly, then they can recognize when there's a problem, deal with it, surround it, signal to the other cells to clean up the problem. And then they take a break when there isn't a problem. And so that's obviously in a normal functioning scenario, that that really important inflammation response and then being able to turn that off when there's no threat, as you say. Exactly, right. Interesting. So you mentioned histamine. Um, I definitely want to come back around and circle to um, acid reflux as we chat today. But just one more definition so we know what mast cells are and what then happens in mast cell activation syndrome. Right. So there's some different types of mast cell disorders and mast cell disorders used to be thought to be extremely rare. <clears throat> this was such an ingrained belief in traditional medicine that it took a very long time for mast cell activation syndrome to be recognized. And so that's the one we're going to talk about today. And that occurs when the mast cells become overreactive and they're over-releasing the, these inflammatory chemicals. So they're producing too much inflammation. And when you think about how toxic our world has become, our, our water supply, our food supply, our air, all the chemicals we're exposed and the things we put in our skin and our deodorant, all of these chemicals are confusing the mast cells. So the mast cells have tons of different types of receptors on the outside so they can detect, like we talked about before, what they should let in, what they shouldn't let in. And these chemicals are scrambling the signals, these toxins that we're being exposed to. And so what we know now um, is that anywhere from 9 to 17% of the population have mast cell activation syndrome. So that's huge. That's about one in 10 or one in five people. And with people who have health issues, mast cell activation syndrome is closer to around 50% or more. So that's why I'm so excited to cover this with you today because if people are listening to this and you have health issues 
you very well may likely have mast cell activation syndrome, especially if you've had chronic health mysteries people can't figure out. But we just got a diagnosis code for this three years ago in 2016. So it's still really underdiagnosed, and healthcare practitioners are still very uneducated in this area, and people are suffering for years and years without getting any help. And the other thing that's happened is there's all this information, misinformation out online now about mast cell activation syndrome because that's just what happens when there's a new thing. People are trying to learn it. They put out what they know, but they may not have all of the information yet. But because I have this myself, I've been working in this area for seven years, which is a long time in this area. So just to hit on a few of the symptoms so people can kind of be thinking, I wonder if I have this or maybe my child has this or my partner or somebody I know. Um, it's, it's really hard to pin down concretely because the mast cells are in almost all of the systems in the body. So some of, I'm just going to hit on a few of these symptoms and systems, but generally people can have overall fatigue or just feeling bad. Chemical sensitivities are really common. Chronic inflammation and swelling. Um, arthritis pain that moves around. Muscular bone pain. Hyperflexible joints is common, but not necessary. Um, Skin-wise, people, if people have skin symptoms, not everybody has skin symptoms, um, they might have flushing, hives, uh, reddy, reddish uh, complexion is common, uh, itching, what's called dermographia, which is where if you scratch your skin, you get a scratch, um, you'll get a redness or a white mark, or it might even get raised for a while. People can get big reactions to bug bites, like mosquito bites. Um, psoriasis is common. And then we think about the heart, if, if people have heart symptoms, and again, they may not, they might have heart palpitations, dizziness, lightheadedness when they stand up and low blood pressure, but some people have high blood pressure and have this. Digestive symptoms are common, and these will be things like diarrhea and cramping or alternating diarrhea and constipation, or people can have chronic constipation, nausea, food sensitivities, IBS goes along with this. Some people get throat tightness when they eat and bloating will happen. And then the brain has a ton of mast cells. So if people have brain involvement, they can have brain fog, memory issues, headaches, migraines, depression, uh, nerve pain, anxiety, and insomnia. These are common with the brain symptoms. And then the lung symptoms will be things like wheezing, coughing, asthma, Increased mucus is common, so like that post-nasal drip and people kind of clearing their throat, like <clears throat> trying to get rid of that. And then people can have trouble with the eyes. There's reproductive symptoms. And you don't have to have all of those at all, but what's the typical way of looking at it is at least two systems will be affected. So like digestion and skin symptoms or insomnia issues and chemical sensitivities. Okay, great, because you answered my question because those symptoms are um, something probably most people have experienced at least one point in time. And so it's good to understand that at least two systems are impacted. But then talk us through the diagnosis, like what needs to be there in total to actually be given the diagnosis of mast cell activation syndrome? So this is an area that's still solution. And there is, uh, in the U.S., diagnostic criteria, and the majority of the functional practitioners don't agree with it, and we don't like it. <laughs> but I'll tell you what the traditional criteria is, which is um, you do have to have related symptoms. And I, I did want to tell people, if you want to read more about those symptoms and get in more detail, I've got a, a page on my website with a lot of information. So if you just go to uh, mastcell360.com and then there's a menu item that says MCAS and if you click on that under that says what is MCAS and they have all of the symptoms listed down there. But you have to have symptoms in two or more systems um, and then there has to be a diagnostic marker, blood marker or 
urinary histamine. So there's a list of different tests people can get. And then another sign is if antihistamines clear up the symptoms. That's a pretty um, telltale sign. But the problem with the blood testing and the urinary testing is that it's extremely unreliable. And these mast cells are producing chemicals all the time. You might get a flood of them and then they're gone. And so you have to get tested in the height of the flare. Most people, when they're really, really sick, don't want to go to the lab. If you do the urinary histamine test, uh, that's tricky because you have to collect your urine for 24 hours. You have to keep it chilled, chilled on the way to the lab. The lab has to keep it chilled, and they have to run it within a short period of time. So if anything goes wrong there, you're going to get a negative result. And there are some practitioners who do testing in their offices who will keep their patients there for six to eight hours trying to get a positive marker. So they'll test on the hour every hour just so they can get this diagnosis code for insurance purposes. And this is ridiculous. And there's so many people who are getting missed because of this. So what I'm looking for, and I don't diagnose for insurance purposes, um, but what I'm always looking for is the health history, have the other obvious things been ruled out, are antihistamine supplements or medications clearing up the symptoms, and do people have some kind of reaction that's bigger than the norm. So mosquito bites are bigger than the norm. Or if they scratch their arm, I have people do a skin scratch test. Um, is that getting really red and it stays red? Those kinds of things are what we're looking for. We're looking for a clinical picture. Interesting. And I'm sure we'll see this develop over the years, as you say, it's a pretty um, misunderstood condition and with that only, you know, very new diagnostic criteria, I'm sure it'll be refined in time. I hope so. <laughs> so you mentioned histamine before and I think this is a, an interesting area because of that typical hay fever response that nearly everyone's familiar with, they at least have a bit of an understanding of histamine. But can you connect the two for me um, and how this relates to food as well? Sure. So mast cells, there's three main major immune cells in the body that produce histamine, and mast cells are probably the main one. And histamine is really important to our body, so it's involved in that immune response. Histamine also triggers the stomach acid release so we can digest our, our protein. It also works as a neurotransmitter. And so there's mast cell activation syndrome and there's histamine intolerance, and they're related. So histamine intolerance is limited to an issue with too much histamine in the body and the body can't break it down fast enough. So that can be overconsumption of histamine or there's four enzymes that break down histamine in the body and people may have heard of like diamine oxidase and there's a methylation enzyme that's involved. So these, there could be genetic issues or functional issues that mean that those enzymes can't keep up with the histamine and the histamine levels rise in the body. And you can get similar symptoms, very similar to mast cell activation syndrome. So where the overlap occurs is that the mast cells have histamine receptors on them. And so if we have too much histamine and we have mast cell activation syndrome, it'll trigger the mast cells. And remember those over 200 other kind of chemicals can get released too. So histamine intolerance is limited to a histamine issue, whereas mast cell activation syndrome involves the other chemicals that are there in the mast cells as well. And it can be really hard to tease out what people have if they just have one or the other. So there's a few things that are very indicative of a difference. If somebody gets reactions just from smelling a trigger food, that's likely a mast cell activation syndrome. Or as soon as somebody puts um, a piece of food in their mouth, they start to get reactions or symptoms before they've even chewed it and swallowed it. Then that can happen with mast cell activation syndrome because those mast cells are super responsive. Whereas with the histamine intolerance, 
that can be so tricky because you may not get symptoms if you get symptoms immediately, but they may not show up for two or three days because of that histamine bucket concept of it's about how much the histamine load is rising in the body and whatever else is happening to increase those histamine levels. Yeah, I can see. And I do see that a lot with histamine. Just, you know, some really common examples um, come from, you know, doing food prep that you think is, you know, a really great um, thing to do on a Sunday. But then, of course, when the food sits in the fridge, the histamine levels build up. And mm. when the bucket is full, then the symptoms occur. Um, right. So you probably do the same, but we tend to advise anyone with those sensitivities to freeze their portions straight away. Um, and then, of course, there's the kind of issue with um, consuming lots of bone broth. So what do you do in those instances? Yes, I, I love the topic of bone broth. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so some people have um, just mass activation syndrome and they don't have histamine intolerance. Mm-hmm. And those are the people who probably can have bone broth, leftovers aren't bothering them. It's a small percentage of people with mass activation syndrome, but there are all people out there that, that don't have problems with histamine foods. A lot of people like me have both mass activation syndrome and histamine intolerance. And when you have both, the symptoms tend to be more extreme. One of the ways I got myself in really big trouble with my health was I, you know, as I was working about 20 years ago to figure all this out and I was trying different things and I got involved in the Weston A. Price movement, yeah. which is that wonderful information. And if you don't have histamine intolerance or mast cell activation syndrome, great stuff. But I was making my own bone broth and I was doing the chicken foot broth because I wanted all the cartilage. And I was making my own fermented veggies and kombucha. And, you know, my, my kitchen looked like a lab. And I couldn't figure out why I was getting worse and worse. My insomnia was horrible. I ended up addicted to Benadryl. And even with the Benadryl, I couldn't sleep. And um, so I tell people when they come in uh, for an appointment, our first case review, that we have to see what the histamine component is. And so I have people try low histamine diet and let's see what happens. And if we try the low histamine diet and we're supporting the four histamine degrading pathways, if it's just histamine intolerance, the symptoms will clear up and start getting much, much better. If we get a partial improvement, but there is um, still a lot of symptoms left, then likely we have both mast cell activation syndrome and histamine intolerance. And if people are really diligent and they're really doing a good job in freezing their leftovers like you talked about and, um, and following what I give them the protocol, which I'm very thorough on the low histamine diet, and we don't see any change at all, then they're probably one of the few that have just mast cell activation syndrome and not histamine intolerance. Interesting. And what about with just with a low histamine diet, um, it can be quite... Well, I'd love to hear how you prescribe it because there's obviously quite a lot of foods that you mentioned like the um, bone broths and fermented foods and cured meats and, you know, cultured dairy products if that's what you do. Um, But then there are also foods that release histamine and there's quite a lot when you look at a real food or a Western A price kind of a template. So just if you could briefly, how do you sort of navigate that to make sure it's not too overwhelming for a person trying to eat low histamine and, of course, trying to still include food diversity? Right. Well, I have a list where I've just simplified it for people, and you can actually get it on my website. And so anybody who's listening is welcome to download it. Um, the problem with most of the lists online is, again, the misinformation. And so sometimes those lists are based on either studies where they didn't, ha- they didn't control well and they just listed everything people reacted to. So a lot of foods got excluded that shouldn't be excluded. Or they're just listing all the foods that, produce, that support, say, diamine oxidase, which includes um, salmon and walnuts, which are histamine liberators. Salmon can be very high histamine and then walnuts are histamine liberators. So it does, it is very confusing out there. So I give people just a simple list um, of foods in the yes column and foods that we're going to avoid in the no column. 
And people eventually have to work out kind of their own list because there's lots of other kinds of food triggers people can have, but it's a good starting point. And then I have people bring me their food diary every appointment and we step through and take a look at what they're doing, what kind of symptoms they're having. So it gets customized for that person as we go along. But just that basic list I put out on my website for people. And that's under, so under the masscell360.com, the MCS menu item, there's a place that says MCAS resources. And that's got the food list right there at the top. And so I think that's the easiest way to probably look at it. And I just included the high histamine foods and the liberators, just simplified it all. Okay, excellent. Um, a little bit of a sidestep, but, um, you know, we do talk about methylation on the show and certainly more than we do about MCAS. Um, but we know well, what I sort of see a lot in clinic with histamine that's high, we're really starting to look at how we can support methylation and often looking at um, adding in certain B vitamins like methylfolate. Is that anything that you do in this sort of space? Um going back to looking at MCAS as well? Yes. So I do a lot with genetic analysis Mm -hmm. and I'm on the board of the Nutrigenetic Research Institute. And I analyze over 10,000 variants that are involved in mast cell activation syndrome and histamine intolerance. And we get a lot of clues there, but we can't just go on the genetics, of course, because that's not taking into account the genetic expression. So I love the methylation profile that you can run through. um, Doctors Data has one, Genova has one, and really see what is happening there with the methylation cycle. Make sure that we're producing enough CME, and if not, make sure it's not getting stuck because CME, as you know, has to be there to methylate one of the histamine-degrading enzymes called HNMT. And so we make sure there's enough CME. And then if there's not, find the stuck point, just like you're talking about, do we have an issue with methylfolate? Do we have an issue with B12? And we can start to discern that from those methylation profiles. So that's where the functional testing is so helpful, especially because in the mass activation syndrome population, people tend to be pretty sensitive to methylfolate. Methylfolate can actually stimulate mast cells. So we can't do it early on. If people need that, we have to do the low dosing. And then we can bring it in um, higher amounts as people move along and we get those methylation pathways open better and other things balanced and the mast cells supported. So that's another sign. People probably need to find a functional practitioner who gets these pathways as if they're reacting to that methylfolate, which is pretty common. Well, I was just thinking the same thing. There are a lot of people who... Um, can't tolerate it at all, and mm-hmm. so that is a sign of MCAS or a symptom. It may be okay. It may be yeah. Mm. Interesting, but yeah, I totally agree with um, doing that further down the line. <laughs> I think a lot of people are jumping into methylation perhaps a little bit too soon, and that's one of the reasons why it can go a little bit pear shaped. One of a better word because they're. Um, rushing rather than setting up some foundations first it's it's a mess this is a rant that i actually wrote about um it's going to be my next blog post it's going to come out um well may come out before people listen to this but it's um about genetic analysis and how we have to approach it that it, it can't be a linear relationship so people are going well if there's mthfr variants you just give methylfolate i have had people come into my office stuff that had been put on five grams of methylfolate and they couldn't sleep. They were coming out of their skin and that's too much. And methylfolate stimulates a process called mTOR at those super high levels, which can worsen pathogen issues, which if people have um, tumor suppression issues, makes that much worse. And so we have to be really careful. It's not simple as you're saying. And, it's a systems thinking process. It can't be a linear process. Can't ever say MTHFR equals methylfolate. And the other thing is MTHFR has some protective factors that very few people are even talking about. And so, um, you know, got, it was kind of 
put out there like it's a death sentence or, you know, you're absolutely going to have chronic health issues. That's not true. We just have to check people's folate levels and keep an eye on them. Make sure. And I've got people with methyl folate variants and their folate looks great, you know, and their methylation profile looks great. And so it's how that gene's being expressed and how it fits into the picture of all of these thousands of other genes and enzymes we're coding for. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's not a death sentence. I think it's important to be aware of, but a lot of the sort of prescription is diet and lifestyle, you know, natural folate and, and, and the rest of it, which is a little bit off topic, but I think it is important to touch on because of what's going on in the health space and, and certainly in the last couple of years with the popularity of MTHFR. Right, right. It, it's not even my top 20 list of variants that are a major issue for people. I look at it, um, but there's much more important ones that, that we've got to be talking about. So, yeah, I'm glad we're on the same page there. <laughs> awesome. So I wanted to go back to talk about um, acid reflux or more specifically stomach acid and how that's impacted from a histamine point of view. Um, well, and at least H2 triggers the stomach to release acid, which we absolutely need to you know, function properly, protect our body from pathogens, digest and absorb our food. But in your space and certainly in um, mast cell activation syndrome, what's the connection with stomach acid and then anyone that's experiencing reflux? Yeah, well, you know, we have this main two main reasons people have acid reflux. People usually think of it as being too much stomach acid, you know, but typically it's that rebound from too little stomach acid. And that's usually about 90% of the cases. Now we get into these histamine issues, it gets a little more complex because you can have people that are overproducing histamine and then that will trigger too much stomach acid. So sometimes with the histamine issues, just diamine oxidase will calm that down. So that diamine oxidase uh, is an enzyme our bodies make, but we can also take it in supplement form and it'll help degrade the excess histamine that's producing the excess acid. And then some people like me have both excess histamine, not enough diamine oxidase, and then as a third factor, not enough stomach acid. So then that gets a little more tricky because I have to take the TNHCL and the diamine oxidase when I eat. And then that manages my, my stomach acid. And I've seen looking from that perspective and of course ruling out things like H. pylori and some of the other factors that can cause an issue there. Uh, looking from that perspective, we can usually resolve most stomach acid issues uh, if we can kind of take this kind of functional and root cause approach to it. Oh, totally. And it's, it's a huge mess again with um, the other prescription of PPIs and what that does to our long-term health and B12 depletion. But yeah, we've got to keep busting that myth and acknowledging the importance of stomach acid in balance, of course. Yeah. Can I, can I just go on another rant really yeah, quick? <laughs> just because, you know, having been through all of this myself, I know what it's like to be confused and not understand or trying to do what you're told to do or trying to do what you're reading online and doing everything to the best of your ability, but it's still not working or you're getting worse. And the problem with these PPIs and the H2 blockers is that, well, let's just talk about the H2 blockers. So these are things like um, Zantac, and tagament. So they block the histamine receptors. They're a type of antihistamine, but that's a misnomer. They shouldn't really be called antihistamines because they're not lowering histamine levels. Same with the H1 blockers like the Zyrtec, the Claritin, the Allegra, the Benadryl. They're not lowering histamine levels. They're just blocking histamine receptors. And then what happens is the longer the histamine receptors are blocked, the body starts to think, I don't have enough histamine. And the body will overproduce the histamine to try to compensate. And then you need more of the medication. And then the body's going to overproduce more histamine, you need more of the medication. And it becomes this cascading snowball effect 
that can be a real nightmare for people. And I've seen this a lot where people have been on these medications for a long time. They're getting worse and worse. And that's the problem with this traditional medical approach is that it leaves mass selectivation syndrome and histamine intolerance. It makes it progressive. And some of the traditional thinking is that it is progressive. And I can tell you it's not when we don't have a dependence on the medications. And it's not like there's not a use for them. There absolutely is, especially if people are in an emergency situation or short-term early on. But just to keep piling medications on people is making them worse. And it doesn't have to be that way. I couldn't agree more. I love your rants. I'm definitely on the same page there. <laughs> and it's about finding someone that understands the, the more, you know, broader view so that we're not just treating the symptom, always going back to that root cause, as I know you're a big believer in. Yes, exactly. So let's talk more about foods. Um, so, yeah, what, what's the relationship with food triggers and, and how can we kind of navigate that space when it can be very grey? Yes. Yeah, so with mass occupation syndrome, most people are only talking about histamine foods. Mm-hmm. And I just wrote about some of the other food triggers on my blog. Two of the biggest ones are lectins and oxalates. So lectins are getting more attention lately. Lectins are proteins in certain plants like beans and lentils, tomatoes, potatoes, eggplant. Also, most grains, wheat, corn, rice, quinoa, um, millet. No, not millet. No, it's not a, not a lectin but a lot of the other grains that we eat. And these lectins, the proteins in them can actually bind to the mast cells and cause them to produce more inflammation. This was a game changer for me. I only found out about lectins about two and a half years ago. And uh, I had been in a car accident and was having just horrific inflammation from it that was continuing to burn out of control. And when I stopped eating the lectins, my joint burning stopped in two weeks. It was amazing. It was just gone. And there are a lot of lectins. And so when I started that, I cut out all the lectins. And that got more restrictive than I would like to be. But there's a great test that just came out called the lectin zoomer. And this is what I use now with my clients to see which lectins are affecting them. And it doesn't test for all of them, but it's a decent panel so we can at least narrow it down. So I ran mine and I didn't have reactivity to rice. So I get to bring rice back in my diet, which is really helpful for me. Um, And so we don't ever want to reduce the foods unnecessarily. So I really like doing the testing when we can to keep people having as much variety as possible. And then another one that's a big one in mass activation syndrome is oxalates. Have you talked about oxalates on here before, Steph? No, not at all. I think it's a really fascinating space, especially one that's not talked about enough. Yeah, well, this is a big one. So oxalates are in different plants. And they're like tiny little crystals of glass. They actually look like razor blades under a microscope. Plants make them to keep animals from eating them. (laughs) And these oxalates can produce a lot of inflammation in the body because what they're doing is they actually scrape the cells as they come through the body. They are some of the highest oxalate foods are some of the foods that we think of as being the healthiest foods. So highest oxalate foods, spinach, sweet potatoes, almonds, beets, Swiss chard, and rhubarb are absolutely crazy high. And at one point when I was at my most ill, I was working really hard to eat what I understood to be healthy. So I was making spinach smoothies. I was eating beets every week. I was eating sweet potatoes every week. And because I was gluten-free, I was using a lot of almond flour. And my joint pain got so bad I could barely walk. I had to use a cane. And it was excruciatingly painful. It's not usually that severe for people, but oxalates are the most common cause of kidney stones. And um, But they don't usually cause kidney stones. They usually cause things like fibromyalgia, 
muscle pain, joint pain, gut issues, sulfur intolerance is often an oxalate issue. People can get urinary burning and pain. And it's really, really common when there's candida or any mold toxicity because fungal species produce oxalates as well. So if you have any fungal infection systemically from mold exposure candida, you almost likely have an oxalate issue. And here's the thing I want people to hear before you run out and start Googling low oxalate foods and start boiling <laughs> them for yourself and take all the sweet potatoes and spinach and beets out of your diet. One, don't do it unless you know you have an oxalate issue because those foods have amazing nutrition and some people just need to reduce them. They don't have to take them out altogether, but do not ever, ever, ever go low oxalate cold turkey because the oxalates get stored in the bones and the muscles. And as you eat fewer oxalate foods, the oxalates will get pulled out of storage. And if you go low oxalate in your diet too fast, it actually can be dangerous. People have ended up hospitalized with kidney stones. So you have to go slow. I always tell people you have to go slow. So before people start lowering oxalates, I recommend you do oxalate testing. It's a really easy at-home urine test. And then I also look at the oxalate-related genes. And that way we can see the total load of oxalates and how slow the person needs to go or how fast and then make a plan reducing the oxalate. But this is a, a big one. I I don't think it's getting enough attention. So I just was talking yesterday to the mother of a young girl who's having horrible pain from her tear glands. And they, you know, people were saying, well, maybe it's preservatives and eye drops. Or like she's not using eye drops. You know, there are all these theories going out. But I think it's oxalates. So the oxalates can come out through the tear glands. Sometimes people get sandy stool. Urinary burning is a very common one. It's associated, uh, well, it's usually the cause of interstitial cystitis and vulvodynia. And um, so this, this girl's going to do the oxalate test. I also had a client, um, I'll call her Cindy because I can't use her real name. And when she came in to me, she had such severe urinary burning. She couldn't sit down. All she could do was pace in my office. And then doctors kept giving her antibiotics. Even though her culture, they did a urine culture, it was, it was clear there was no bacteria. But she'd been trying antibiotics for a year. And then we just looked at her genetics. We ran this test called an organic acid test that has three markers for oxalates. She had really elevated oxalates. Those little razor-like microscopic oxalates were scraping the urethra on the way down. And I just put together this mass cell-friendly oxalate reduction protocol, and we had it cleared up in four weeks, something she'd been suffering with horribly for a year. And a couple months later, she traveled. She forgot her supplements at home. The burning and the pain came right back. So we knew we were on the right track with that oxalate protocol. So this is why I'm such a huge proponent of having the right tools, doing a really in-depth um, comprehensive health history, looking at the symptoms, knowing how these things fit together and getting the right functional testing for that person because we can help people so much faster and there's just too many people that are suffering out there. Yeah, and, and removing all the guesswork, I think it's so, so important. So I love the advice that you provide around not just pulling out all the foods. I think that's disastrous and it, there's just too much guesswork involved. So the testing is crucial to understand root cause and to make sure you can include as many foods as possible rather than ending up being able to tolerate like quite literally two foods. Exactly, and it's more than... So most, most practitioners just give people an elimination diet if they can sort through what these food triggers are. But that's not enough. We have to fix the pathways. And so if somebody has oxalate issues, we can support the oxalate lowering. We can fix what's causing the oxalate issue. So if it's a fungal issue or it's a leaky gut issue, or if, let's say, we don't have a lot of time to get into these, but there's um, salicylate issues and glutamate issues. Well, we can support the enzymes that are involved in those pathways. So sometimes it's there's a nutrient deficiency. So people start reducing their foods, then they're losing nutrients, 
the nutrients get out of balance, which worsens the underlying pathways because the cofactors whose enzymes aren't there, and then they tolerate even fewer foods, and then they get more nutrient imbalance and they tolerate even fewer foods. But if we support the underlying issues, look at what nutrients need to be supported and, and bring that in with supplementation, a lot of times we get these pathways fixed. People can get most of their foods back. I was down to about 20 foods when I was, 20 safe foods. Um, if I counted salt, pepper, and every herb I could tolerate, I had 30. And um, it was way too low. I was underweight. It was miserable. I couldn't eat out. I had to, um, when I traveled, I had to take like one of those little electric burners with me so I could make food in my, in my hotel room because um, there was so little I could eat. But it was because of these huge nutrient imbalances. And once I got those back on board, I don't eat crazy high histamine foods and I don't eat processed foods, but I've got a lot of foods back and I can even have small amounts of bioxalate foods. I can have a little bit of avocado or bite of strawberry and um, feel great. I had walnuts last night, which are histamine liberating, slept wonderful, which that would have set me off on a three-week flare a few years ago. Yeah, I love that. It's also important to provide the context that the foods or many foods could possibly be reintroduced. So just with the underlying nutrient deficiencies, what would that look like for lectins? Or is it too general to answer? <laughs> yeah, that's a little different category. Okay. It's a great question. Um, lectins aren't an enzyme issue like glutamates and um, oxalates and histamines. Lectins are signaling. So they signal to the mast cells. So the way that we address the lectins are to get the mast cells calmed back down and then rotate and, and moderate the lectins that we're bringing in. But that whole thing with the nightshade family causing inflammation, that's a lectin issue, also causes a lot of cardiovascular issues. Yeah, fascinating. So, such an interesting space. Um, and again, I'm sure one that we'll learn a lot more about. But just for all our listeners that are either looking at their current symptoms that you listed earlier or someone that's having a light bulb moment about all of their food sensitivities, what do they do next? What are their next steps? Sure. Well, one thing I wanted to touch on is if people have fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, interstitial cystitis, any kind of irritable bowel issues, Crohn's, people have EDS, which is earlier standlose. Um, if people have any autoimmunity and autism spectrum disorders, if you've had chronic Lyme, if you've had mold, think massive activation syndrome. Those things are really, really connected and any chronic conditions will stir up those mast cells. If you think you have mast cell activation syndrome, I have a free report on my website. So if you go to mastcell360.com slash free report, I go into the root causes. That's really important to look at because that's the key to healing. That's the key to getting your life back. So going from when I was bedridden and couldn't hardly walk and had to use a cane and couldn't work for a year, now I run a really busy practice. I walk my dogs two miles, and I have a really full life. It's a different world, and that's the way I did it. So the most important thing for people is to find a functional practitioner who really understands mast cell activation syndrome and these different food sensitivities. But unfortunately, there aren't many of us out there at this time, so really make sure you research your practitioner because I get people come in all the time I've seen already 5, 10, 15 practitioners. They have, I have people come in who've spent $80,000 at a clinic and came out worse. So you want to make sure you have somebody who knows what they're doing. And then, yeah, and then when you're looking for a practitioner, make sure they know these root causes. And the root causes that I talk about in that report, like how chronic infections play uh, a role, toxicity, food triggers, genetic factors, nutrient deficiencies, 
hypoxia issues, which is low oxygen and hormone imbalances and even stress and trauma are all involved in these. Mm. Yeah, I think very complex, important to understand who is the best person to help you. And so you've mentioned a lot of links, which I love. I will pop those in the show notes, but please also yeah, direct our listeners to where they can learn more from you and your online uh, locations. Thank you so much, Steph. And I, I want to just end by telling people, whatever you do, don't give up. <laughs> the, people that, the people that get well are the ones that are persistent and they don't give up. And if what you're trying right now doesn't work, try something else. And if the person you're working with doesn't understand what you're dealing with or you're not getting results within three to six months, find somebody else. You have to keep going. And those are the people that get well. I love it. So good. So we'll pop the link um, to your website. And just for those listeners that are out and about, what, what are your social media handles? I'm at, um, on Facebook, I'm at MassCell360, or sorry, just Facebook slash MassCell360. Awesome. Beth, it's been so great to have you on the show. I've learned so much myself and I'm sure our listeners have too. I look forward to speaking with you again in the future, but thank you for sharing all your knowledge here today. Thank you, Steph. I'm so happy that we can team up like this and really help people get well. For sure. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.